Well, hello mortals, it is your Valkyrie Darby here to throw a little knowledge at you. I know our audience is just super wet for history. So today is, you guessed it, Histories, Harlots, and Heroes, a segment where we introduce and teach you all about a historical whore, a slut of the past, a babe from back in the day. Today, I, Mistress Darby, will be taking you to the New Orleans of the 1900s. We are currently recording and transmitting this episode from our opulent spaceship of fiendish fun. Welcome to The Babes of Valhalla. Content may not be suitable if you are underaged, closed-minded, or immature. We discuss topics that are graphic and sexual in nature. All right, everyone. So it is I, Darby, back again. Um, Before we get started on our Histories, Harlots, and Heroes segment, I also wanted to do a little bit of an update. So if you have not listened to our previous episodes, which shame on you, naughty girl, make sure you do. We are still accepting um, stories and different, you know, takes or opinions or feelings or whatever, you know, our current topics that we're researching bring up for you. So we have mental health, we have motherhood. Those are kind of like the two big ones that we're looking at. Um, We're gonna be posting some videos and doing some like online calls on our Instagram as well, but we would love to hear from you. So please DM us, email us, uh, go to our website, babesofalhalla.com. You can submit a request there or like, you know, give us your story there. Voice messages are great. If you have any questions about that, just reach out to us. So I also had a really exciting weekend. I was able to go and see Jacqueline Francis, known as Jack the Stripper, uh, do her one-woman show, Divorced in Paradise. So I was super excited. Um, I'm a big fan. I feel like for me, she was one of the first people that... I found as a young stripper who was finding that intersection of stripping and art in this bubbly, fantastic way that I just really was attracted to. Um, I've read all her books. I've backed her Kickstarter coffee table, you know, project. Um, I mean, I love all of her projects and I have connected with all of them. And I think that, yeah, I don't know, she was just, she introduced me um, online, like via her Instagram, to a lot of other sex workers that were making art as well. And that kind of opened up a whole new like online world to me because ever since I started sex work, I have been making art about sex work. And that was one of the big reasons why Charlie and I wanted to do this podcast was because These are the things we care about. We love sex work. We love art. We love king culture. We love talking about these kinds of things. And for me anyways, she was a big, I don't know, influence, I guess, and avenue into finding the rest of other people that were in that community. And now I just feel like, you know, I'm so much more involved in, in activism for sex work and in talking about it and how to talk about it and how to talk to customers about 
different issues that they might not be aware of or that they are aware of, but they don't understand it from the perspective of a sex worker, you know, all those things. And I just think that, you know, she opened my eyes to a lot of ways to have those conversations and also ways to find an online community of other sex workers and other sex workers like me in that I want to make art about it. I want to talk about it. So I love her for that. And I saw her show in Brooklyn. So if you guys don't know anything about her, uh, that's where she's Canadian, but she has been living in Brooklyn for a long time. And she actually recently moved to California. And I was really sad when she moved only because I never made it to any of her Venus flytrap shows. I just could never make it work. And I was like, if she, she did this tour, she announced it divorce in paradise. I was like, I'm fucking going. So super excited that she came all the way back to the East Coast. Yeah, I went and saw her show in Brooklyn, and I kind of wanted to talk about it a little bit. So her show's name is Divorce in Paradise. It was about 90 minutes. She had performances by Valley Latini, who is a singer-songwriter. And then she also had um, performances by, I really don't want to butcher her last name, but Janet Huey. And they were both awesome. I knew Valley Latini, Latini before because Jack had posted about her. Uh, Janet Huey, I did not know, but super awesome. She's a belly dancer. She fire spins. She's like burlesque. Um, I looked her up on her Instagram later and like learned all these things about her. So that was really cool. I also, me and Charlie also belly danced. So I was like, oh, that's fun. Um, and then Valley Latini has like a beautiful haunting voice. Uh, I think like Banks, Lana Del Rey kind of type, but she is a really great singer-songwriter, and it was fun to see her perform live as well. So the show was great. I mean, it was fun. It was bubbly. It was vivacious. It was a really good time. And it was also really awesome. I mean, I don't know anything other than what I know online, but, you know, she's announced that she's divorced. And I loved the way that she talked about divorce. I loved that she didn't bash her ex. Um, I really didn't think it was on brand for her, I guess. I wasn't expecting that, but I was like pleasantly surprised that it wasn't a 90-minute show of like all the ways in which her ex-wife was an asshole. Um, it just sounded like, you know, Jack wasn't happy and she's moving on. But in her hilarious, fabulous, glittertastic way, and she, you know, kind of went into how she really views it as being this super freeing thing now to be single. And I've never been married, but girl, I feel you. Uh, relationships where you feel trapped suck and people pleasing sucks. So again, totally related to everything in her show uh, in more ways than one. And that was awesome. So I ended up sitting next to Rachel Green who runs the Boss Bitch show with um, another female comedian. And she used to do the Venus Flytrap shows with Jack. So also super fun. I got to talk to her and I was like, oh my God, how weird. I totally know who you are. Um, was I fangirling the entire time? Yes. Did I embarrass myself? I don't think so. But I mean, I couldn't help it. I was super excited to see this show. I mean, I was there an hour before doors opened. I like sat at the bar and had drinks and just sat there watching the woman who was going to take my ticket and like making sure that I was like one of the first like six people. 
like led into the fucking venue room. Um, hilarious. I usually do not get this way, which is really funny. Um, but I was really excited. I also feel like I don't know when or if I'm ever going to see her perform live again, just because she doesn't live in Brooklyn anymore. And I don't know. I just didn't, wasn't sure. So sat front row, like dead center front row, like four feet from the stage. Loved it. It was freezing in the venue. The venue was called $3 Bill. Super cool, like gay bar. Um, I guess they do like a lot of drag shows, a lot of other events, like concerts and stuff. The place was super quirky and cute and everyone was super nice that worked there because I was just like there. I mean, I was the only person there other than the staff setting up. Like that's almost, like that's as embarrassing as maybe it can get, but I don't care. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was great. So sat the front literally watched every you know second of it like couldn't take my eyes off of it like I, I loved it um I loved that it, this sounds so lame but I love that who she is online is also how she seems to perform maybe who she is in person I mean everybody has a persona after the show she sold um like she made these books like these art books that were kind of like oh they were based off of um like nudie magazines. I'm totally losing the name of the magazine, but I will, I will figure that out and we'll put it in the notes for this episode. It was like cover of hers called Divorce in Paradise. And it was all about her journey through art and like her art that she used for healing. I bought one, of course, it's beautiful, amazing quality. She was selling like original watercolors, original artwork, also very cool. And she signed my magazine for me. Oh, Sports Illustrated. That's what it was. It was designed like a Sports Illustrated. That was kind of like what she was playing off of, which I thought was obviously very cute and very cool. And I waited in line and had her sign it for me and just totally stuttered my way through talking to her because I like really wanted to say something like meaningful. And I found myself like almost tearing up. Like it's so embarrassing kind of for me. This is not who I am. I just got a little bit like, like, like starstruck, I guess. Uh, I went up, I was like, hi, I've been like following you for a really long time, like seven years. And, you know, I am, you know, would you sign this for me? And she was like, oh yeah, what's your name? And I like, told her my government name. And then I was like, uh, I mean, Darby, like I I'm also a stripper. And I was like, I just, I just want you to know that like, I'm just really happy that you exist. And like, thank you for everything that you do. And she was like, she like, you know, laughed and was like, yeah, you know, just trying to, trying to exist or, or, you know, I do my best or whatever. And it, it was, I was like, okay, thank you. And like probably ran away. So, and then I was like really tense for like 15 minutes after that, because, uh, I was just like, I wish I would have said something better, but I didn't. So that's fine. Um, yeah, anyways, the show is great. If you haven't seen it, I don't know how many more dates she has left. I want to say, like, she's doing some dates in Canada, and then that's it. But definitely look on her website. She's got tons of stuff. Support her. She's awesome. I mean, support all stripper artists. Like, I love it. And um, I was just super happy to see that. So that's my little review of her show. So today, we are going to talk about the amazing kind of mysterious Lulu White. 
So, Lulu White, we don't have an exact date of birth. It's not known. But we do know that she was born on an Alabama farm in 1898. She liked mystery. So the mystery of her heritage, she kind of played off of that and she told a lot of people a lot of different stories about where she was from. That she was from Cuba, Jamaica, the East Indies. She just kind of loved to play with that and so a lot of people would think they knew and then someone would be like, oh no, she told me that she was from this other place. And everyone kind of realized that no one knew. So she first found her way from Alabama to New Orleans um, keep in mind that she, Lulu was a little bit of a badass, a little bit of a criminal. So she had, you know, a long list of kind of petty, petty crimes when she arrived in New Orleans. But she found her way into sex work by first posing for erotic photographs in the 1880s. But Lulu had her eye on a bigger prize. She eventually owned her own brothel in 1894 and chose the bustling Storyville, New Orleans' infamous red light district that from 1898 to 1917 was flourishing. So it was speculated that this brothel that she built took $40,000 to build. And in today's world, that would equal about 1.2 million. And this is what really began her journey to becoming an infamous madame. So before we move into the sultry world of Lulu White, I want to paint the scene for you of what Storyville was and kind of how it came to be. Storyville was originally named the District, and it was established by municipal ordinance under the New Orleans City Council to regulate prostitution. Sidney Story, Story, which is what where they got the name Storyville, uh, much to his dismay, by the way, was a city alderman for New Orleans. He spearheaded this project and wrote guidelines and legislation to control prostitution. The ordinance designated the area that became Storyville as an area of the city and where prostitution would be tolerated. So it was never legalized, but it was like, okay, within this area, from this street to this street, you know, it's going to be kind of a safe zone to participate in kind of unlawful activities, right? So the original ordinance read, from the 1st of October, 1897, it shall be unlawful for any public prostitute or woman notoriously abandoned to lewdness to occupy, inhabit, live, or sleep in any house, room, or closet without the following limits. South side of Custom House, Eberville, from Basin to Robertson Street, east side of Robertson Street, from Custom House to St. Louis Street, from Robertson to Basin Street. So that was basically outlining the area in which anyone, any woman who was participating in, you know, lewdness um, could live, which is also one of the first times that like an ordinance or was created to kind of manage or, or, or create an area, right, that was based off of not race and said it was based off of gender. So that's kind of how he ended up doing this. So with this, Sydney's story effectively regulated prostitution without actually legalizing it. Storyville back in the 1900s or late 1800s, early 1900s was a vibrant and a very popular place. Um, it was situated by a train station. It was kind of like this hub where visitors from like, you know, coming from all over to New Orleans would kind of end up being funneled into. So it just became very much this, this very, you know, hop in place. It impacted the way that jazz developed in New Orleans and has even been credited for its beginnings. It had everything from large mansion homes for high-end clients, 
attractive multi-story homes, and cheap cribs, as they were called. Black and white brothels coexisted in Storyville, kind of, you know, something for everyone. However, black men were barred from legally purchasing services in either black or white brothels. So pretty lame, but that was the late 1800s, 1900s. Um, so while you wandered the streets hearing jazz music drift out of saloons and from parlors, you might also find something interesting to help you on your way through this iconic red light district. Between 1895 and 1915, blue books were published in Storyville. These books were guides to prostitution for visitors to the district wishing to use these services. So they would include house descriptions, prices, particular services, and the women, or stock as they were referred to, that each house offered. These were inscribed with the motto, Order of the Garter, Honi Sot Kimal E. Pence, Shame on him who thinks evil of it. These books were distributed throughout the city and could be found in bars and barber shops, all pointing to the many offerings of Storyville. So you could be like chilling at your barber shop in New Orleans and there could be a stack of blue books and you could pick it up and you could find, oh, hey, if I wander down a few streets over to Storyville, this is, you know, some new ladies or, you know, oh, so-and-so is, you know, now at this house or whatever, whatever. And you could see basically ads for the homes, like the, the brothels, and also for the women. So there would be like a photo of, you know, whomever, let's say Lulu White, she would have one, and it would describe her. And it would say, you know, what she looked like and where she was from. And they had designations for, I believe it was race, um, like what they looked like, they had dark hair, white hair, this, that, and then I think religion as well. So you could kind of like go through, it was like the the, the city guide um, instead of restaurants, it was for um, prostitutes. So now back to Lulu White, our infamous Madam of New Orleans. So while building her brothel, Lulu was determined to make it the cream of the crop. And it was, she created the most high end, most gorgeous, most gorgeous brothel. It was originally going to be called the Hall of Mirrors because she had a parlor that was completely mirrored, but the name was actually changed to Mahogany Hall. And Mahogany Hall was, at the time, what was referred to as an Octoroon Hall. An Octoroon is um, now a racist term that means that all of her prostitutes, including herself, were one-eighth black. So we don't really, we don't, this term is not used anymore, but back in the day, this was a term that was used. And she really, really, really leaned into that, which we will get into later. But Mahogany Hall um, was an Octoroon Hall, as it was called then, and it employed prostitutes of mixed races, and it was located on 235 Basin Street. It was built of solid marble with a stained glass fan window over the entrance door. It had four floors, five different parlors, and 15 bedrooms with attached bathrooms. The rooms were furnished with chandeliers, potted ferns, and elegant furniture. The house was steam heated, and each bathroom was supplied with both hot and cold water. Mahogany Hall employed roughly 40 prostitutes. Popular women of Mahogany Hall included Victoria Hall, Emma Sears, Clara Miller, Estelle Russell, Sadie Reed, and Sadie Levy. Lulu White advertised these women as having beautiful figures and a gift from nature, and gained a reputation for having the best women around. So 
Lulu White would take out these ads in these blue books and she really leaned into the word exotic and that all of her women were born and bred Louisiana girls and that they were the top end, top tier. They were gorgeous. They were mysterious. They were gifts from God, which of course, no shit. Of course they were, um, that they were the best of the best. And so her clients were the highest paying clients. Mahogany Hall was the place you wanted to be. That was like where all the money was. She also opened a saloon next door. So she had a banging bar. She had the most high-end uh, brothel in town in all of Storyville, which is amazing. She achieved amazing, amazing success. And remember all those uh, blue books we talked about earlier? Those were actually produced under Lulu White. She built a saloon next door to Mahogany Hall, like we said, and the second floor actually became the production center for the Blue Books. So Billy Struve was its main producer in New Orleans. Struve was known as the mayor of Storyville, and he published approximately 16 editions until 1915. So she was kind of known as like a marketing genius. Like she had the Blue Books in her saloon. She was taking ads out for her girls and for her broth that were just great. They were well-written. They made... All the women sound very, very, very interesting. And I want to read one for her. So Miss Lula White. This famous West Indian octoroon first saw the light of day 31 years ago, arriving in this country at a rather tender age and having been fortunately gifted with a good education. It did not take long for her to find out what the other sex were in search of. In describing Miss Lulu, as she is most familiarly called, it would not be amiss to say that besides possessing an elegant form, she has beautiful black hair and blue eyes, which have justly gained for her the title of the Queen of Demimonde. Her establishment, which is situated in the central part of the city, is unquestionably the most elaborately furnished house in the city of New Orleans, and without a doubt one of the most elegant places in this or any country." She has made a feature of boarding none but the fairest of girls, those gifted with nature's best charms and would, under no circumstances, have any but that class in her house. As an entertainer, Miss Lulu stands foremost, having made a lifelong study of music and literature. She is well-read and one that can interest anybody and make a visit to her place a continued round of pleasure. And when adding, she would be pleased to see all her old friends and make new ones, what more could be added? So you can kind of see, I mean, she's, she's got it down. I love it. Obviously, this is in the language of, you know, the late 1800s, 1900s, but I love it. So Lulu herself was a shrewd businesswoman, and she had a lot of things going on. You know, when Prohibition happened, she changed her saloon to a soft drinks house. Um, she was kind of always shifting, figuring out the things that made that made the most sense. And, you know, she really leaned into this idea that like all of her, her women that worked in her house were educated, that they were smart, that they could talk about art and culture and music and that they were exotic, which she viewed that as um, a gap in, in like what was available at the time. So very, very, very intelligent. She also loved diamonds and finery and exquisite um, super fancy, fancy, fancy taste. 
especially, especially diamonds. So she kind of was known as being rarely seen without her jewels, and that earned her the title of the Queen of Storyville. However, Lulu preferred the title of the Diamond Queen, and she also claimed to have the largest private jewelry collection in the South. So unfortunately, all good things come to an end. The hall was forced to close down in 1917 following the closure of Storyville when restrictions on prostitution got really tight and they kind of kicked everybody out. Storyville actually ended up being demolished over the next, you know, decades after and turned into housing developments for low-income families. Originally, um, the house that was built for $40,000 didn't sell until 1929, almost 10 years later, and it fetched only $11,000. Oh, so sad. This beautiful, beautiful home. Can you imagine what it would have looked like and what it could be now? I mean, sounds like the perfect place for a boutique hotel. My God. The hall became eventually a house for the unemployed in the mid-1940s and until 1949 when it was finally demolished. However, the significance of the hall can still be found in various museums and in the jazz tune Mahogany Hall Stomp, written by Spencer Williams. This was also um, a song that was recorded by Louis Armstrong. Now, I think the only thing that is left of Lulu's that she built is the first floor of her saloon, uh, which is very sad, but it is what it is. After closing Storyville, Lulu was imprisoned for three years because she opened um, her second brothel too close to a military base. After being pardoned by President Woodrow Wilson, Lulu opened another brothel and ran it until her supposed death in 1931. Unfortunately, due to bad business dealings, Lulu died penniless. So there are some mystery or there is some mystery surrounding Lulu's death. She's reported to have died in 1931. However, a bank that she held um, the rest of her, like, her money in claimed that in 1941 she made a withdrawal. And she kind of disappeared from history. I mean, that's really the last sighting that we have of her. Because there aren't great records of her personal intimate life, and we don't know, as far as I can tell, if she ever had children, if she ever married, um, what she was like, other than what we know about what she wrote about herself in the Blue Books and what people have reported about her. So what we know is that she was definitely a troublemaker. I mean, she she was always in trouble with the law, but she was an incredibly intelligent businesswoman. She started out in New Orleans from nothing, and she rose to the very, very, very top. She found a way to, at a time when society was not kind to anyone that, you know, wasn't white, where it was limited to what you could achieve. She found a way to use that to her advantage. She found a way to to find a place for women like her to make money and be the best at it and make the most money, which is awesome. I mean, more power to you. Like, that, that shit's legit. She leaned into um, all of the things that made her unique. And I think that that's something that's very special about her. She was a good writer, which I also love. She paints an excellent picture in the ad that we um, that I just read for you about, about her. And she was, I mean, she was known as being a gorgeous and strong woman not to be fucked with. So I love that. I love learning about her. I think, I think that was amazing. Um, I'm sad that to go to New Orleans now, there wouldn't be a trace of her really that her beautiful brothel that she worked so hard to build and, and make 
it's just so gorgeous, is gone. And it's sad that there are only traces of her, you know, here and there, but it's awesome to know what an impact Mahogany Hall had. And there's so many jazz musicians, you know, that, that played in Mahogany Hall to entertain clients. So many people were influenced by her and by the place that she created and by Storyville itself, which is amazing. So that is kind of all I really have on Lulu White. Thank you all for listening for today's episode of History's Harlots and Heroes and joining me, Mistress Darby, on uh, this adventure learning all about Lulu White. I will be posting the um, resources that I use if you want to look up some more information in the episode notes. So you can find all of that. We will also have some photos on our Instagram of pictures that uh, we found of Mahogany House and of Lulu White. So, you know, that puts the rubber on today's episode. Thank you for joining me. In the meantime, to soothe your aching loins, you can find us on Instagram at Babes of Valhalla. If you'd like to email us or DM us an antidote for an upcoming episode, please check out our social media for the themes you are currently researching and send your comments and stories to babesofvalhalla at gmail.com. Don't forget, we have merch on our website uh, in about 15 days, uh, babesofvalhalla.com. So mark your calendars. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, stay nasty. Babes of Valhalla is written and produced by the Babes of Valhalla, otherwise known as your illustrious lieges, Darby and Charlie. Music provided by the musical genius, Gemini Genesis.